2020 was a year of change. We changed the way we worked, the way we connected with loved ones, the way we delivered healthcare, and yes, the way we delivered maternal and early childhood home visiting services. When COVID-19 hit in March of 2020, in just a matter of weeks, New Jersey and other states shifted from in-person home visits to virtual and telephone visits. Home visitors used services like Zoom, Doxy, and FaceTime to deliver essential services. Now that this shift has happened because of COVID-19, what does that mean for the next 10 years, for the next 100 years? Do we go back to our old ways, or is this an opportunity to view home visiting through a different lens? Home visiting is at an inflection point. We have an opportunity to transform home visiting to better and more equitably serve families with young children. So how do we do that? Welcome, I'm Kim Bowler, Chief Strategy and Evaluation Officer at the Nicholson Foundation in New Jersey. For more than 25 years, I've evaluated policies and programs designed to enhance the well-being of infants and toddlers in the US and around the world. Unfortunately, we find that most early childhood programs and policies do not have meaningful and lasting effects on children's development. During this podcast, you'll hear from five experts about how future casting can help us create transformative change in home visiting. We'll discuss some big, bold goals for 10 to 100 years from now. So first, future casting. What is that? To answer this question, I'm joined by Joe Waters, CEO and co-founder of Capita. Joe, thanks so much for joining me. Let me start by asking, what is future casting and how can we use it to imagine a different future for home visiting? Great. Thank you, Kim. Future casting, or sometimes called strategic foresight, is a discipline by which we look at signals and trends in our environment to imagine possible futures in our case, focused on children and families. We look across domains of society, technology, economy, environment, and politics. We understand what transformations are happening in those domains, and we imagine the future that we want to design for our children and families based on those domains. Can you give us some examples of how you've seen future casting used in the social policy area? Who's involved? How does it happen? Sure. Well, we did it in 2019. We produced a report with KnowledgeWorks, which is the first ever 10-year forecast looking at how these trends in culture and society are impacting our youngest children and their families. We have since used that in a number of settings, particularly to help people who are working directly on the ground with families who are experiencing these transformations to be more responsive to the needs of families. So we've talked before, and you have pushed me hard to think about beyond 10 years, all the way to 100 years. Can you say more about why you want us to do that? Certainly. So, Kim, there are over 10 billion young children yet to be born in the 21st century. And we need to exercise responsibility in our systems, our policies, our investments for their futures as much as for the future's of our children who are living today. And so really what this discipline helps us to do, imagine the needs and and the systems that will be required to support children and families in 2079, 2089 and beyond. They are stakeholders in those systems and we have a responsibility to meet their needs. Yeah, 
Mm, that is really motivational. Thank you. So one question that I have for you as we wrap up is uh, folks who want to look further at this, try it out, learn more, what should they look for as far as resources? Sure. Well, our partners at KnowledgeWorks have been using strategic foresight in the education and children's space for over a decade now. They're a great resource, as is the Institute for the Future, which pioneered this discipline and has applied it to all sorts of different policy uh, areas and business as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Joe. I'm so pleased to welcome Lenore Scott, Assistant Division Director of the Office of Early Childhood Services in the New Jersey Department of Children and Families. Lenore, thanks for being here. You and I have worked together for more than 10 years to understand how home visiting in New Jersey and across the country can contribute to systems change. We've never seen a shift like this before. Here we are in 2020, things change very rapidly. So what do you think these changes mean for the future of home visiting? Wow, Kim, that's a powerful question. And what I really think it means is that we really have to analyze how we do our business, right, and how we do it differently. I think that this situation, this pandemic has really shown us the critical needs of our families. And I think um, it's really had all of us shift on a dime about how we deliver these services. And I think the positive that has come out of this is that it really has shown us the value, the true value of home visiting services. I think, um, you know, over the years, as you said, right, we started this over 10 years ago. And, um, you know, not that home visiting was in its infancy, but I think um, in the beginning, it was really hard to, how do we describe it? What is it? And I think now we see exactly what it is and how what it means to the families that we're serving. So I think that, um, again, I think we recognize that it's not just, you know, these individual programs, but it's part of a larger system, right? It's part of the larger system of early childhood. And how do we continue to value these services? Yeah, so I think the thing that I've been really puzzling about are the kinds of issues that families are facing accessing virtual services, given that home visiting is a relationship-based approach. What are Mm -hmm. you seeing and hearing about how implementing agencies are addressing those kinds of issues with families? It's been very powerful, right? I think in some instances we were really focusing on the negative, like, okay, we know that there is a digital divide and how do we sort of, you know, conquer that? But we recognize too that through this relationship, there were still ways to maintain that closeness with folks. And so we have, we've received pictures of various programs who are doing drive-bys. We've seen, you know, pictures of various families, um, that are, you know, attending maybe group um, connections, those types of things, of course, doing it very safely, of course, right? And, um, and so I think um, one of the things that we're discovering through this process, right, because again, we don't know how long this is going to last, but I think the upside is, has been, is that, you know, the engagement, right? We're recognizing that we're able to engage families differently and a little bit longer in some instances. It's provided flexibility, even though we've said that that's been a cornerstone 
of home visiting services, but we're seeing flexibility being demonstrated in a much more um, vivid way. Um, having services early in the morning, late at night, and again, um, because you know we can do this, you know, it's still face to face, but it's differently. So I think some of the struggles that we're thinking through is like, how do we work through the developmental screening aspect in those types of things? So we're still working on those. Absolutely. So I think what I you know, wanted to say as we wrap up here, that virtual services seem to get to families that we may not have been able to engage for as long. Well, thank you for pointing that out, Lenore. Thanks for being with us. Mm-hmm. Not a problem. Welcome to Diane Paulsell, Vice President and Portfolio Lead of the Social and Economic Policy Division at APT Associates. Thanks so much for jumping into this discussion of the future of home visiting, uh, Diane. My first question for you, given your vast experience in evaluation research and uh, reviews of the evidence, what more research are we needing now about virtual approaches and how to create effective family support programs and policies? 10 years from now, what do we need to get there? Maybe even 100 years. 100 years, that's a long time. Um, So, you know, for the past 10 years, we've done a lot of research on home visiting, randomized control trials, implementation research, the systematic evidence review. Um, So we know a lot about delivering these services and what kind of outcomes they produce. Um, I think as we move into the reality of some new ways of serving families, such as uh, virtual services, it's really important that we're tracking progress in reaching demographic groups and those who are most in need. Um, I see the value of, of virtual services for reaching some families in rural areas and other hard to reach groups, but there's also the digital divide. So we don't really know how we might be excluding those that most need the services. So we need to track carefully those um, demographic groups and whether we're reaching those most in need. And when we identify inequities, which inevitably we will, we really need to focus with a sense of urgency on strategies for overcoming those barriers to access. I'm not convinced that we're still getting to the most in need people. You know, that's a really great point. And, you know, when we're thinking about what the states should be doing, what the federal government could be asking them to measure, These are issues that are really important, both on the side of understanding the least reached, right, uh, through these different modes of service delivery, but also how it meets family needs. I know you've been thinking a bit about that as well. Right. I think that's one of the exciting ways that the field is stretching and growing right now is thinking about how to match services with families' needs and preferences, So I think one of your other uh, participants is going to talk about precision home visiting, which aims to tailor services to individual families' needs. I think another exciting development is components research, which aims to identify across models the components that drive positive outcomes. And so this could help us identify some of the essential building blocks of home visiting that are most important for helping families. And then programs can use those building blocks to tailor their programs at a program or community level for greater efficiency and effectiveness. 
Yeah, that that's exciting. So when you're looking forward into your crystal ball or you're thinking, what gives you the most hope about how home visiting and other services have responded to COVID-19? Um, well, when I think back to 10 years ago when, when we started doing all this work on home visiting, it's, it is pretty incredible how the field has developed over 10 years. And if we can keep that up, I think, um, you know, there'll be more developments in the future. And I think what we've seen from COVID is that programs have been able to adapt to maintain contact with families, to continue delivering services and trying to meet the new needs that have come up because of COVID. And I think these, these tools that we've talked about, such as uh, precision home visiting and components research can help us continue pushing in that direction. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Diane. Thank you. So today, now we have Brenda Blasingame. She's a program officer at the Pritzker Children's Initiative. Thanks so much for joining our discussion of the future of home visiting, Brenda. As you're looking across different ways government and philanthropy funded services for children and families rolled out and were given before COVID, as well as what's happened since, what gets you most excited and what causes you the most concern about this type of service delivery? Um, what I'm most excited about is how we've adapted and how we've adapted so quickly and places where people said, oh, we can't do virtual, we can't have this, it won't work with our program, that they were forced to do it and that they've done it and we've seen results. And I think the biggest concern that we have to have is that in switching to virtual services, which opens the door for more people, that there are a number of people that don't have the access that they need to have to Wi-Fi and to internet, reliable internet service. And they may not even have the equipment that they need to be able to do it in their home. So I think we have to think about the equity issues that exist around the digital divide in our country. If you live rurally, or even if you live within the inner city, but you don't have the socioeconomic economic status, to have all the things that you need. And our country has to think about how do we take that divide and make it smaller. So who are you looking to to lead this effort? What have you been seeing around the country that might solve this problem of the digital divide? Um, I think I, that because the pandemic laid it bare, like it laid so many other things bare, I think that there are more people thinking about it. I think there are more people talking about it. And I think that people are trying to take action, that there now are more groups that are coming together to say that we do have to address the digital divide in our country um, and we need to do something about it. And what I'm hoping that will happen is that we'll have enough advocacy that we actually at the federal government level can look at how we make internet available and affordable to everyone in the United States, regardless of their geographic location or their socioeconomic status. Gotcha. Thank you. So um, we have talked over the years about the fact that many um, home visiting service providers don't really reflect the racial and ethnic makeup of the children and families that they serve. What do you see as a way to change this moving forward? What have you seen out there that's moved us in this direction? So I think we really do have to start thinking about um, how do we reach those families that we're not reaching? We know that there are millions of families that are eligible for home visiting that are not accepting home visiting services. And we think that part of that may be 
um, having a trusted person that looks like them. And I think for a lot of people, they think, well, that's just too simple. Why does it have to be somebody that looks like you? Well, when we think about the fact that we know that lived experience and being culturally, linguistically appropriate in the provision of services makes a huge difference, I think we have to acknowledge that there are some other ways that we can provide services. We often think of everything that we do that it's got to be that person with the BA, the person with the um, master's, letters after their name, or a medical professional, instead of thinking about what, who are the families and what can we do to reach those families that's not, that meets them where they are and provides what they need. And how we can do that is by thinking about how do we use paraprofessionals and community health workers in our home visiting services, which if we move to doing that, we clearly then open up the opportunity for trusted community members to come with their wisdom and their knowledge and their lived experience and for them to then be um, a part of learning about early childhood development and taking both of those things and working with families. And there are some models that do that really well. I mean, Healthy Families America is one of them. Um, the community-based doula model that comes out of Health Connect One is another one where we're using paraprofessionals. Well, Brenda, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. Thank you for having me. Mary Catherine Arbor is a physician, quality improvement advisor, and associate physician for research in the Division of Global Health Equity at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. Welcome, Mary Catherine. You spent so many years looking at data-driven quality improvement that can lead to better outcomes for children and families through home visiting and other services. How can we make home visiting a bigger, bolder force for change with equity and justice at the center? Thanks, Kim. Um, you know, the first thing is home visiting in the last year has really reinforced to me that it is a big and bold mechanism for change. The home visitors and the home visiting programs in the middle of COVID continued to have supportive and transformational relationships with families, even when the main vehicle that they used to do that through was impossible. So they couldn't see people face to face, but families still said that their relationship with home visitors was the most important support, especially in times of stress and increased isolation. Wow, that is fantastic. So when you think about virtual visits as reaching families who haven't been reached before, um, we know that it's been tough to get to everyone or get them to take up the visits as expected. What gets you excited about that? You know, for me, virtual visits have been a real revelation in my own practice as a physician and also in my work with home visiting teams. Um, it has been in some ways easier to reach some of my hardest reach patients and engage them. And for home visitors who visit people in a rural area and might drive half a day to do one visit, a no-show means a missed month of visits. And with virtual visits, that's not the case. You can pick up the phone, you can contact people, you can be more flexible on timing. And families have said that that has been really, truly appreciated. There were many of us that were skeptical that virtual visits could do the job and that we could do the work the way that is meaningful to us and to our patients and families, but it's proven to be true. Oh, that's fantastic. So, so talk a little bit about the kinds of data that we're gonna need on virtual visits and how are we gonna get it and what's important as you move forward in uh, designing your uh, studies to come? 
Yeah, uh, the data that I most prize in the upcoming work is going to be family-centered data about satisfaction, what works about virtual visits, how do they work, how are they done well, how are they not done well, and when do they really want to see someone in person? Um, Because there is still a place for that in-person contact, but we have such a broader arsenal to draw on now. The other data I want to draw on is platform-based data that can be collected automatically with a lower burden, and especially systems-integrated virtual group visits that are a part of innovations that weren't possible before. Oh, that is absolutely exciting. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Kim. Given that home visiting is at an inflection point, now is the time for us to reimagine a future 10 to 100 years from now where in-home and virtual visiting have evolved to become part of a support system centered on serving the needs of all families and communities. We hope you'll join us at the National Home Visiting Summit session on Future Casting. I'm Kim Bowler. Thanks for listening. Thank you.